Alright, well, we're starting in Matthew 27 today. Gospel according to Matthew chapter 27. And last time we uh, finished up chapter 26 from verses 57 through verse 75. Why don't we review that real quick? Does anyone anything stick out from that teaching that you remember? You recall? Verses 57 through 75. There's lots of free will involved in what Jesus prophesied would happen. And with Peter, everything that he did that Jesus prophesied he would do, he actually did. And uh, But there was still free will involved. And yet God knew, Christ knew exactly what would happen. And exactly how he would do it. And the, of course the open theist would probably try to say that uh, God somehow, some way, through all his intelligence, knew these things. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. That God has somehow, some way, knew these things. Do I know how he knows these things? No. I don't think he's looking down at the timeline, but he's he knows these things somehow. And uh, the open theist admits that him, that him knowing this does not take away Peter's free will. the same thing I say. Not take away Peter's free will. Even though Jesus knew what Peter would do. But the open theist would have to admit that it could have happened differently. That Peter could have chosen to deny him twice instead or deny him five times instead or deny him one time instead and make every prophecy a conditional prophecy that God simply reacts to what he sees men do instead of actually knowing what men's going to do ahead of time and we saw that we, as we talked to a, our brother in Christ who was here a few weeks ago we, we talked about this that he was even willing to admit that the prophecies in Revelation which are certain prophecies uh, you know, even First Timothy four one then that the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith. But he has to be willing to admit that there's a possibility that all could be saved. There's a possibility that all the the prophecies about revelation about the end times could actually not come to pass, and God would change His mind. And if God changes His mind, He had to declare it through somebody. It would have to be some kind of prophet. But then we have a conundrum, don't we? The prophet comes along and declares something against God's word. Who are we to trust, that prophet or God's word? Well, according to the open theist, you have to be able to trust the prophet, too. There has to be some way. Right? There has to be some way. And they point to passages like Jonah, 
that Jonah said in 40 days will be overturned, and then it didn't happen. They say God changed his mind about that, and they'll point to like Hezekiah. You know, this, many day, this many days you'll die, and it didn't happen. Except there's life. And they'll point to stuff like that to, to make these kind of conclusions. a very dangerous position to come to. As we go through open theism more and more, I think we're all seeing even more how dangerous it is to believe it's a system. Now, the good news is that most people I know who open theists aren't that consistent with it. Just like most people who I know who are Calvinists aren't that consistent with it. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. But yeah, as we go through this, we use, I mean, anytime you go through the scripture and we're doing an uh, exegesis of just a passage or a book of the Bible we're going through, you're going to see doctrines pop up, bam, 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 over and over again that people believe in that are not biblical. Uh, you know, if we were to do a topical teaching against open theism, it would take a lot of scriptures. A lot of scriptures. Because it's popping up over and over again. You get to see emphatically, time and time again, it's not a biblical system. All right, anything else to stand out from the last time? Let's, uh, let's move on to chapter 27 now. I'm going to read through uh, verse 14. Okay. Uh, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. <clears throat> and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And they threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. <clears throat> then was fulfilled what the, was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took of the 30 pieces of silver the value of him who was priced, whom they, whom they of the children of Israel priced, <clears throat> and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so the governor marveled greatly. <clears throat> okay, so we see in verse 1 that we saw last week that they decided Jesus was a blasphemer because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God. We looked in uh, John chapter 10 to see their accusation of blasphemy there where he claimed to be God as a man, claimed to be God. And they had a decision to make when this claim was made before them. Is he telling the truth? And therefore we have to obey him as God, as Lord, as Son of God. Or is he lying? And if he's lying, then he must be guilty of blasphemy. 
And if he's guilty of blasphemy, according to the law of Moses, he must be put to death. He must be put to death. And so now they're, they're pl- now, now, if that's true, why are they plotting for a way to put him to death? Shouldn't they just break out the stones and do it? Well, it's because they're cowards. That's why. They're afraid of the people. We've seen this time and time again throughout this this. Uh, part of Jesus' uh, life here at the very end. This last week, we've seen time and time again how the, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, were always afraid of the people who were at that point in time for Jesus. And so they were cowards. And so they didn't want to get their hands dirty with Jesus' blood themselves in that sense. They wanted to bring him to the Roman governor and let him deal with it. Okay, So they, they started to think in their minds how they were going to do this. Now, do you think if they, came, they brought Jesus to Pilate and said, you know, Pilate, this guy's calling himself the son of God. He's calling himself God in the flesh. You need to kill him. You think Pilate's going to kill him for that? What law? What Roman law is he breaking? He's not breaking any Roman laws. And so, of course, now they're going to make new charges against him, as we'll see here in a little bit as we go to John. Um, so they bound him and led him away to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And now we have this situation with Judas. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned. So Judas saw that he was condemned... And something happened within him. Maybe, just maybe, Judas didn't think this would happen. Maybe Judas thought that somehow Jesus would get out of it just like every other time. Just like every other time. That somehow God's grace would be upon Jesus and he would, you know, so he went around, ran away from the time they wanted to throw him off the cliff and the time they wanted to stone him. He got away every single time. Maybe Judas saw it as an opportunity. Said, Listen, Jesus got away every other time. I've been stealing out of the money bag this, all this time. I'm going to. Find a way to make 32 pieces of silver and nothing nothing bad will happen to anybody. That's his thinking process. And I think sometimes, friends, that when people get away with a sin, or they think they are anyway, in other words, nothing, uh, nothing temporal bad happens to them at that point in time. They get away with it. No one knows about it. Maybe just God knows about it. But they get away with it in the sense that nothing bad on earth happens to them in the temporal realm. And they begin to think to themselves, I'm getting away with it. Why don't I just keep on doing it? So they begin to think to themselves, don't be fooled by that, friends. Just because, even if you do get away with it, the day you die, delayed judgment does not mean the absence of it. Okay? But even then, don't think that God won't bring judgment upon you before then. That he won't allow some temporal consequences to happen in your life as a result of your continued sin. It can't happen. Don't sin out the grace of God. So Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned, and he was remorseful. And we'll talk about what kind of remorse he had here in a minute. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? You see to it. So you see, Judas didn't think that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Jesus, Jesus, Judas was with Jesus for three over three years. He believed Jesus was a son of God. He believed he was not guilty of blasphemy. He believed Jesus was innocent. He believed that. And put yourself in the, the uh, shoes of the chief priests here for a second, the leaders of the Israelite people. If they really wanted a good witness, why didn't they just go to Judas? I mean, he betrayed them to them, didn't he? For 32 pieces of silver, he didn't, I guess he didn't think Jesus was worth very much. If they wanted a good witness, someone who really thought that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, why didn't they just go to Judas? 
Because they knew that Judas didn't believe he was innocent. Didn't believe that he was guilty. They believed he was innocent. He actually believed he was the son of God. He would have been the perfect... I mean, this guy's with him for three years. He would have been a perfect witness. So, yeah, this guy's a blasphemer. He really isn't the son of God. But they knew that Judas is simply just a covetous person, a thief, a common thief. He loved money more than he loved God and was willing to betray the Son of God for 32 pieces of silver. Now, he may have done it under the pretense that Judas would escape. He may have done it under that pretense. It seems like that's what he's doing here. Because when he saw that he was condemned, he was remorseful. But not until then. I have a feeling that if Jesus wasn't condemned, if Jesus would have escaped somehow, he wouldn't have been remorseful. And that goes to tell you that this remorse he had was not a godly remorse. It was a remorse based upon the consequences of his sin. Worldly sorrow. True godly sorrow is sorrow whether you're caught or not. True godly sorrow with sin is a sorrow whether you get consequences or not. True godly sorrow says, I've sinned against God. How can I do this thing? This one who shed his blood for me. How can I sin against him? That's true godly sorrow. Not, oh no, I'm going to get punished again. I don't like this punishment, so I better stop. True godly sorrow is sorrow because of who you're sinning against. And because it breaks his heart. And grieves his heart. And it should grieve your heart. Especially if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. It should grieve your heart and break your heart and lead to turning away from it once and for all. Let's just turn to 2 Corinthians 7.10 just for a second here. Second Corinthians seven, let's start in verse nine. Paul talking to the church at Corinth, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And it literally, the worldly sorrow that Judas had literally produced death in his life. So I want to talk about some possible responses to sin in your life. Now we all agree we should have no sin in our life ever. But if sin does pop up in your life, there's ways you, you can respond to it. Many ways you can respond to it. Uh, one, and I, I write this list out mostly out of experience. Mostly out of experience. So I've been there. There's a lot of bad responses to sin in your life. One, heaping more sin on top of it. Whether by continuing in the same sin, even though there's no true fulfillment in it, and you just keep on going deeper with it, or you're continuing in some other sin. You know, Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. When you hunger and thirst for sin, friends, it just never fulfills. never truly satisfies. You just go deeper and deeper, and you look up and say, How did I get here? What's become of me? How did I get to this place? That's what you'll think. That's, that's one response 
to, find, to finding sin in your own life. Number two, trying to cover it up and hide it from God and or other people. You can do this by lying to people about the sin. You can do it by committing murder. We see this in the account of David and Uriah, trying to cover a sin. Or maybe you try to cover it by doing good deeds. We'll see this in a second with the, the religious leaders, how they try to cover it up. But covering up is not going to find you mercy. Covering up is not going to solve the problem. That's another bad response to finding sin in your life. Number three, wallowing in self-pity. Woe is me. Woe is me. Wallowing in your self-pity. Exactly what the devil would want you to do. Number four, self-hatred to the point of wanting to kill yourself. Sin is a very destructive thing. It can be very... Uh, and rightly so, you should feel guilty when you sin. Rightly so, you should feel self-condemned in your sin. But wrongly so, you should not take it into your own hands and put your life to death because of it. That's exactly what the devil would want. It's not going to solve the problem at all. Number five, I just touched on this a second ago. Presuming you will keep getting away with it. Presuming you will keep getting away with it. Not only I'll have tomorrow to repent of it, but nothing bad's going to happen. I mean, nothing bad's happened yet, so nothing bad will happen to me. I was the same way. When I was uh, 15 years old, I was stealing from Kmart, and I got away with it many times. And then one day I said, well, you know what, I'm going to go for the big stash this time. I had loaded up my jacket. I had this, you know, kind of jacket on, a pullover jacket, and had it loaded up with boxes of baseball cards and boxes of football cards and candy. And I was running out. I was walking out to the car. I was in the parking lot. I thought I got away with it. All of a sudden, from behind me, two security guards got me. Let's go back in there. And this the guy they brought me back into. He wasn't stupid. He said, this isn't your first time, is it? And I said, no, it's not. So he knew if someone for the first time wouldn't steal all that stuff for the first time they did it. See, I thought in my mind, I said, you know, I got away with the small stuff. Just go for the bigger stuff. And that guy maybe he said, you tell me everything you've stolen from here, and you're going to pay back every penny. If you don't, I'm calling the cops. He said, well, I can either call the cops now, or you can call your parents. So I have to call my parents. I have to deal with them. Um, but if I would have never have gotten caught, I probably would have kept on going deeper and deeper and deeper. Because I thought to myself, hey, I'm not getting caught. I'm getting away with it. Don't ever think you're getting away with your sin. You're not getting away with it. And number six, probably the worst thing you can do is have worldly sorrow and actually killing yourself because of your sin. You're rightly so, we should hate sin. Uh, but we should never hate ourselves. I mean, hatred precedes what? Murder. Hatred precedes murder. To murder someone, you have to hate them in your heart. To murder yourself, you have to hate yourself in your heart. It should never come to that point. So these six things are no solutions at all. They don't take away guilt. They don't take away shame. And they definitely don't take away the sin. They just make the problem bigger. Make the problem worse. But the proper response to sin is to humble yourself, to have godly sorrow, to have true repentance, to have true removal of guilt and shame through these things, to have true forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ and confession 
and forsaking. Confession and forsaking. In Hebrews 4.13 says that the, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom must give an account. All things, friends. It would be no good to cover it up, no good to be prideful about it, no good to continue heaping more sin upon it. It would do you no good to wallow in self-pity. It would do you no good to have self-hatred and wanting to kill yourself and even go to the point of killing yourself. It would do you no good to think you can keep on getting away with it. No good. And so we see in Judas's life that he had worldly sorrow. He was remorseful. He should be remorseful for what he did. But he was remorseful because of the consequences. And his actions did not solve his problem. The guilt and shame he felt, and rightly so, were not taken away because he killed himself. And let's just talk about that for a second. I had a guy ask me recently. So we're, you know, I was in church and some youth, some youth uh, person asked, you know, if you kill yourself, where do you go? And the youth pastor said, uh, well, you're still a child of God. And this guy who asked me this question spoke to him and said, no, that's not true. And then the pastor agreed with him too. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 just for a second. Most of you know these two verses. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, does this mean that if you've ever been unrighteous, you can't inherit the kingdom of God? No, it doesn't mean that. It means if you're currently living unrighteous, you have no part in God's kingdom. And they go on and get a list of people who are unrighteous, who will not inherit God's kingdom. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, there's a Judas there, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And so we see this here, Judas is included there in covetous, but what I want you to point out, I want to point out to you is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God and do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Okay? Verse 11, and such were some of you. So these things that Corinth people did were past tense. They're no longer doing them. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Suicide, simply put, is self-murder. That's what it is. Self-murder, self-hatred. Chapter 22. Might as well go to 21 and verse 7 first. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So people engage in these things. They don't overcome these things. They die in these things. That will be their rest. That will be their place where they will go. Uh, Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices lies. So Judas killed himself. He had no opportunity to repent, no opportunity to confess his sins. Therefore, Judas will be in hell as his final place of being. And people would say, one, one objection I hear to this is that people will say, well, 
I thought the only unpardonable sin was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, these sins aren't unpardonable in the sense that you couldn't repent of them, that you couldn't uh, confess them, because there's people who've failed in their attempt to kill themselves. And then they had a chance to repent, because they lived on. But any sin you die in is by definition unpardonable, because you did not persevere to the end. You did not overcome. And so any sin you die in is unpardonable in that sense. But Jesus taught people who were still alive. And while they're still alive, they're in a sin who's un- it's unpardonable that they cannot forsake, they cannot repent of. There's no forgiveness for it. That's the difference between suicide being unpardonable and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being unpardonable. Okay, so Judas... And, it, and this is exactly what the devil would want the youth of this nation to hear. It's exactly what he would want youth pastors to tell their youth. Youth who are so involved in their boyfriend and girlfriend that when their boyfriend and girlfriend leaves them, they get so despairing because their boyfriend and girlfriend was their God that they want to take their own life. They slip their wrists. That they become so distraught with their family situation at home. But their mother and father don't care. Maybe they're on drugs or doing whatever they're doing. They have no care for the child and they want to put their life to an end. And then you have a youth pastor come along and say, yes, it's okay if you, if you kill your... I mean, he's not telling them he wants them to kill them, but he's giving them a little bit of strength in their sin and saying, yes, if you kill yourself, you go to heaven. God knows your heart. God knows your despair. Yeah, God knows your self-hatred for yourself. God knows your murderous heart towards yourself. And God knows that if you kill yourself, you will go to hell. That's what God knows. But what you ought to do is obey Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. It doesn't say kill yourself. It says come to me. That's what Judas should have done. Judas should have come. He should have stayed around. Should have came to the, the, the apostles and said, you know what, I did what was wrong. I should have done it. Surely they would have received them back. And then just like Peter was restored, Judas would have been restored. And what a great trophy of God's grace he would have been. While we're on that, let's let's talk about Peter and Judas for a second. Let's let's just compare them for a second, okay? <clears throat> so we have Peter. Peter was a coward. He feared man more than he feared God, right? That's the whole reason why he was denying Jesus three times in a row. He feared what men would do to him, even though a few hours before then at the at the Passover feast, he said, "I'll I'll go to death with you." But now he's fear, now his true heart is coming out. He's fearing man, fearing death more than he's fearing God. He denied Christ three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. He did so with cursings and oaths. He had much time between each denial. Even between one of the two denials, he had one whole hour between the denials. He was warned specifically about this ahead of time by Jesus. Specifically. And Jesus looked at him when he denied a third time and he wept bitterly. Let's look at Judas. Judas was covetous. He was a thief. He betrayed Jesus for some silver. He aligned himself with the enemies of Christ. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. So, with these facts in mind, who's worse? Who's really worse here? I mean, at at the best, it's a tie. It's probably Peter, if you ask me. It's probably Peter being worse here. Denying him three times. I mean, Jesus is within... I shot of him while he's doing it. He has all this time between us prophesied about specifically you're going to do it three times ahead of time. 
Surely, I mean, if I did it the first time, I think back, I, I would hope I would think back and say, well, Jesus, I do it three times. I'm going to stop it right now. I'm going to stop it right here at this first time. So I, I don't know which sin is greater, but the, it's they're both pretty bad. But in my opinion, I think Peter's sin is greater. But you know the difference is? The response. It's the only difference. Peter wept bitterly, but he didn't despair. He humbled himself. And, t- and think about this. He would have had to have humbled himself before his friends, his fellow apostles, first. It doesn't say that in Scripture. That's what he would have had to have done first before he came to Jesus and did it. Before Jesus restored him at the end of, jo- at the, end of the book of John. But then we have Judas, who he gave the money back, so he had some kind of remorse. But it wasn't the right kind of remorse. He, he despaired about his sin. He had worldly sorrow. In his despair, he went out and killed himself. In his despair. So the only difference between the two guys is their response to it. They both had great sin. And friend, if you ever find yourselves, for some reason, some kind of great sin, don't despair. Don't say that God can't receive you back. Couldn't God have received Judas back? Could he have forgiven Judas? Was Judas' sin too great for God to forgive? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5 and 6 says. So God could have saved him. God could have forgiven him. But Judas' response was not proper. It's the only difference I see there is their response to their own personal sin. I don't know what was going through Judas' head, but I can imagine it was, oh, my sin is so great. My shame is so great. My guilt is so great. I can never, I can't live with it. But if he went to Jesus, he wouldn't have had to live with it. He would have cleansed him of it. He would have forgiven him of it. He would have taken it away, the guilt and shame away. So we should never presume we're going to sin. It's a matter, always a matter of if. But if, if, friends, you find yourself in some great sin... Don't despair. Come back to Christ. Repent and do the first works. Return to your first love. Don't let it take you down the drain and, and continue down that black hole of sin until you find some look and say, how did I get here in the first place? And so he betrayed innocent blood, we see in verse 4. And look at the response for religious leaders. What is that to us? They didn't argue with him about whether he was innocent or not, did they? They didn't try to say, well, Judas, he is guilty. He's a blasphemer. They said, what is that to us? How seared can your conscience be? That's about how seared it can be. You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasuries because they are the price of blood. What a bunch of hypocrisy. It's okay to betray an innocent blood. It's okay to try to put it to death, but it's not okay to take the money from it and do something for God with it? Talk about swallowing the camel and turning out the gnat. Don't find yourself in that position, friends, where you, you look over a great sin, maybe even in your own life, but you look at the little gnats in other people's life. You follow the, the, the small things, but the big things are out the window. Let's talk about Judas for a second and how he actually died. Go to Acts chapter 1. Because some people who want to make a dispute about this, you might run into atheists or skeptics who'll say that 
there's contradictory accounts between what it says here in Matthew and what it says in Acts. But I don't think there is. So we see in Matthew that it says he hanged himself. Okay, He despaired. He probably found some rope as quickly as he could, made it into a noose, tied it to a tree, and hung himself. Okay, so this is in uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of, of names was about 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. So Judas did have a part in their ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wage of iniquity, and following headlong, he burst open in the middle, of, and all his entrails gushed out. It became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem that so the field is is called in their own language Akademah. That is that is the field of blood. So we see here that it says that the way he died was he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Now does that contradict what what, what Matthew's account says? So I I could suppose that he hung himself and maybe the branch was too weak. Uh, maybe the rope was too weak, and he fell headlong, and he died a death he didn't mean to die in the first place. Uh, now, the traditional site of this place, Field of Blood, uh, there are many cliffs there, and there's many trees towards the edge of those cliffs. And in this day and age, a lot of those trees are basically dead. Okay, So I can imagine back then him hanging himself on a tree with a dead limb, and keep in mind, he's in such distraught, such grief right now, such remorse that he's he went out and did it right away. He didn't think a second thought about it. He went out and did it, and so there's a chance he had a, a, a rope that wasn't uh, strong enough or the, the limb wasn't strong enough. Um, so while he wanted to kill himself by hanging, that wasn't the mode by which he was actually killed. The mode by which he was actually killed is he fell headlong and... Let me just read it again just to be exactly what it says here. Uh, he fell headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Okay? Pretty graphic description of what happened to Judas. And that place is called the Field of Blood. Now, it says in the Acts account that he bought this field. Okay? That, uh, excuse me, that Judas was the one who actually bought this field. But it says in Matthew's account that he gave the money back to them and threw them on the floor. But this language is it's a language we see happen sometimes. John chapter 19 and verse 1, just for a second here. That when it says someone did something, it doesn't mean that they, they literally, personally, themselves took care of it. It could just be talking about an indirect buying it. Through the money, he gave back to them. Uh, John chapter 19 and verse 1, it says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, did Pilate, was Pilate actually the one who did the scourging? Or did he turn it over to his soldiers and they did the scourging? The soldiers did the scourging. And so, just because it says that uh, uh, in verse 18 of Acts 1 that this man, talking about Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, doesn't mean that he actually went and bought it himself, because we know he brought the money back. And then we see in Matthew chapter 27, another example of this kind of language being used in the scriptures, uh, in Matthew 27, verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body 
talking about Joseph of Arimathea, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had honed out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Did Joseph literally himself hone out this hole in the rock for to lay Jesus in? No. He probably paid, he was a rich man, he paid someone else to do it. Okay? So in the same way, the money that was thrown back at the feet of the, the priest, the chief priest, um, was used to buy this field where ironically was exactly where Judas hung himself and then fell headlong and he died. Okay? So that's how you are going to harmonize these passages that skeptics will try to use to say there's a, there's a contradiction here. Simply just added information like we've seen every other time. Okay? And so they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Now this is an example of what I was talking about, what people try to do at times in response to their own sin. They try to make themselves feel better by doing a good deed to try to cover it up. Your good deeds do not cover up your sin. Your good deeds will not wash away your guilt and your shame. They will not forgive you of your sin. But that's what these chief priests try to do. They try to cover up their sin. Let's say, well, I can't put it in there. That's bad. God's law is against that. Innocent blood, no big deal, but that's bad. But I can't, so I'll buy something and we'll bury strangers in it. That'll make me feel better about myself. So oftentimes people try to do this to cover up their sin. It says, therefore, the field uh, this day has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, verse 8 of Matthew 27 doesn't give the reason why uh, it's called the field of blood. But in Acts 1, it does give the reason why, doesn't it? So there's similarities there, even though Matthew's not giving all the details. Uh, verse 9, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now, there's been some controversy about this, too, because it seems like this, this quotation here, now keep in mind, quotation marks are not in the original language. Okay, um, There's no Greek uh, mark for quotation marks. So that's not in the original language there. They're putting the quotation marks there because they're saying, Jeremiah the prophet saying. So where is it quoting from? Well, it's very similar to what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 11. Let's turn there for a second. Zechariah chapter 11. And we'll start in verse 12. Now, Zechariah was a prophet. He was a pastor, so to speak, to the children of Israel. And, uh, you know, he should be paid by them for being a prophet to them, for being a pastor to them. And so this is him speaking in verse 12. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. If not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Okay, now one thing you got to know is 30 pieces of silver was a very meager wage to pay someone. It was the same price you would pay for a common slave in those days. It's almost like an insult to Zechariah because they, they didn't like what Zechariah said to them. They didn't like his message to them. Just like most of the prophets of Israel, when a true prophet came along, the Israelite people, for the most part, rejected them. They would hear the false prophets who would say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But a true prophet came along and told them to give up their sin and come back to God, they rejected him for the most part, okay, as a whole. And so they were insulting him by how much they weighed out for him, okay? So they rejected Zechariah's message, they're, they're insulting him by what they're paying to him, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. 
So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And I cut into my other staff. Actually, we'll just stop right there. That's the, that's the end of it in verse 13. Okay. Now notice there's, there's not exactly a quote. Okay. Uh, what similarities do we see here? We see 30 pieces of silver being a similarity. We see a potter being mentioned, being a similarity. Uh, the price the children of Israel put upon Jesus. 30 pieces of silver being a similarity to the 30 pieces of them putting as a price upon Zechariah. So those are the similarities. And we know the 30 pieces is not, not a price that Judas said. Judas didn't say, pay me 30 pieces of silver. He said, what will you give me? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. We see that in Matthew 26 and verse 15. So that was the price the, the chief priests were putting upon Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. They reject Jesus' message. And he said he was worth 30 pieces of silver, the amount a common slave was bought for. We see in Zechariah. That his messes were rejected. They saw his his labor worth 30 pieces of silver. Okay? So those are the similarities here. But you don't see anything in Zechariah uh, uh, 11 talking about a field or buying a field. Uh, so there are similarities, but there's not complete similarities here. Okay? And the whole point, of, you see in verse 10 of Matthew 27, is to buy the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, in Jeremiah chapter... Um, 32. Turn there just for a second. Right after Isaiah. Chapter 32. And uh, starting in verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption, it is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, said to me, Please buy my field, that is in Hanathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, redemption yours, but buy it yourself for yourself, that I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. So we see similarities here where he's buying a field. The Lord told him to buy the field, as we see in verse uh, 10. The Lord directed to buy a field. We see similarities in this, but in this we have 17 pieces of silver, right? So it seems to be Matthew's quoting from both, a conflation of both. But in doing so, he didn't mention both prophets. He simply just mentioned Jeremiah, who was the major prophet, where Zechariah is the minor prophet. Okay. Um, in fact, the book of the prophets, the first prophet in the book of the prophets was Jeremiah. Okay, so Jeremiah was the major, major prophet, where Zechariah was a minor prophet. So there's a conflation of both of what both of them are saying here, but he only mentions Jeremiah. Now, for a skeptic, that may not be sufficient for them. So what? I don't really care. Uh, the fact of the matter is, skeptics come to the scriptures to look for problems. I come to the scriptures realizing it's God's word, and I seek to find solutions to possible problems. And it may not even be, uh, you know, in your mind, a sufficient solution. Well, okay, I'm willing to, to receive that. But I will tell you this, that I won't take one, two verses of scripture where there may be a problem that I haven't found a great solution for 
and dismiss all of Scripture because I can't figure out, as a finite human being, a sufficient solution for somebody. You understand what I'm saying there? Okay. So there are going to be problems in Scripture at times that maybe you won't have the answer to right away. When I first read through the Scriptures, I didn't understand a lot of it. There are things I was like, well, what does that mean right there? But I continued to read and I continued to study and I continued to pray about it. And the Lord finally, eventually gave me an answer to it. So that made me down the road, the Lord will give me a better answer than what I just gave you right now. That's the best answer I got right now. You may find a better answer than what I've given. But I'm going to tell you this, friends. Don't let not having a good answer to two verses of Scripture lead you to reject God altogether as some skeptics say they have done. Now, I don't really think that's the real answer. They're rejecting God. I think the ranchers, they, they're unrighteous. They love their sin. But to do that makes no sense to me at all. Okay, so maybe we can talk about that more a little bit later on. If, if anyone else has a better solution to those verses, I'm willing to hear it as well. But we see here, the point, the, the comparison we see here is that they rejected Zechariah and gave him an insult as to what he was worth, his message was worth. They rejected Jesus. They gave an insult to Judas to see what Jesus was worth. It was insult. And it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, in that time, this is a parallel prophecy, right? Because it had a fulfillment back then. And now it has a fulfillment again. Okay? Alright. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now, let's go to John 18 and look at a more detailed uh, account of this first conversation with Pilate. Okay? John chapter 18, and we'll start in verse 28. All the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only have this one phrase from Jesus, it is as you say I am. Okay? Uh, but let's, let's look at John 18, starting in verse 28. <clears throat> then he led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they should, might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we have not had to deliver him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death, death he would die. So let's stop right there for a second. Verse 31, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, did they have that problem when they stoned Stephen? Oh... Did they have that problem when they uh, killed James, Jesus' half-brother? It's not written in the scripture. We know about it from tradition. Did they have a problem then? Once again, it goes back to them being cowards. And they're simply lying to him right now because they would have killed him if they didn't think they would have a problem with people. They would have killed him. But this, their lying here, fulfills the prophecy because they wouldn't have crucified him. Only the Romans are going to crucify him. They would have stoned him to death. The Jewish law does not say crucify someone who commits blasphemy. It says stone him to death. So this, this actually was going along with prophecy. You see, God was for, in foreknowledge, knew this was going to happen. Okay? Um, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? <laughs> Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So he 
he dismisses this claim um, that we're going to look at here in a second in Luke, that he's trying to take over as a king, trying to take over the Roman kingdom. And he's simply saying, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Which not only dismisses this, this claim that he's here to take over the Roman kingdom, it also dismisses the claim that we should fight for ourselves or defend ourselves. If, 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 you, def, if you fight for Christ in the name of Christ, you're saying Christ's kingdom is of this world. But is Christ's kingdom of this world? So whose kingdom are you fighting for if you fight in this world? You're not fighting for God's kingdom, that's for sure. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. That should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, he was a relativist, I guess, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him. Let's go to Luke for a second to look at the, the accusations. They, I should probably should have went to this first. I'm kind of going out of order here. But look at the accusations they brought against you. Because they didn't bring the accusation of blasphemy against Jesus when he came before Pilate. Uh, they brought a different accusation. I'm sorry, Luke 23, verses 2 and 5. Uh, verse 2. And the, uh, the Jewish leaders began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they didn't bring accusations of blasphemy, because that would, he would have said exactly what he said to him in John. Go take care of your own law. But then they would have had problems. They had to stone them to death, and they would have had an uprising among the people, and they'd probably have been hurt themselves. And then he goes to Jesus. We saw the conversation he had with them in verse 3. Pilate comes back and says, I, had, I find no fault in this man. According to your accusation, he's not trying to take taxes for himself. He's not coming against Caesar as king. He's not perverting the nation. And in verse 5, But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. More false accusations. Now, did he stir up the people? Yes. But uh, it was because he was telling the truth. So that's a good verse for us to open our priest. Next time someone comes to you, a Christian says, well, you're stirring up the people. They're all getting angry. Well, what did Jesus do? He stirred up people. People got angry. People got upset at what he said and what he did and what he claimed to be. And so we see the accusation, we see there were cowards in their accusations against him. We saw Pilate found no fault in him, we see even Judas found no fault in him. He said he was innocent blood. And uh, in verse 13, of back in Matthew 27 now, uh, Then Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered not one word, so the governor marveled greatly. You know, when someone brings an accusation against someone... What's the typical response from that person? Defense. So Jesus knew he needed no defense. He needed no defense. His, his actions, his words, everything he did spoke for itself. And what he just said to Pilate a second ago spoke for itself. And Pilate knew he found no fault in him. He knew he was telling you. His own wife knew. His wife came to Pilate later on and said, have nothing to do with this man. He's tormented me greatly in my dreams. He knew. She knew he was, he was innocent. Even they knew he was innocent. They didn't argue with Judas about it. 
So next time someone, uh, this, is, this doesn't mean you can't ever defend yourself. I'm not saying that. But next time someone says wrong things about you or lies about you, I want you to consider not defending yourself. I want you to consider that. Your life should speak for itself. And not only that, but we see in Matthew 5, it says in verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. They say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, and for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. So as people lie about you, you're in good company. When people lie about you, you have a great reward. Be exceedingly glad. When people lie about you, the greatest company you're in is not the prophets, but Jesus. That's great company to be in. But he was innocent to the end. Innocent to the end. All right, well, we'll stop there for today. And open up the floor for questions, objections, or something that anyone wants to add. Yes? Uh, just interesting that we just went into this. Somebody just brought this, act, this uh, objection up to me, the Zachariah one, uh-huh. and Jeremiah one, two weeks ago. It was interesting to study itself. Yeah. I'm just kind of adding something. Uh, it was interesting to look into the Septuagint. They're missing the first 15 verses. Of uh, okay. Interesting. Jeremiah thirty-two or Zechariah? Okay. Okay. All right. You know, it's also possible that uh, Matthew's quoting directly from Jeremiah and Jeremiah only, and this is something that we don't have written down. Yeah, yeah. That could be that too. So. Right. Yeah, it's possible. Thirty pieces. Yeah. 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 That'd be interesting looking to too. Unless, unless that part you're talking about that's from Jeremiah actually mentions all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It just amazes me how quickly people will dismiss God and Christ and all that he's done for them.
No, I'm not saying he's purely objective. I said he's more objective. He wasn't sitting there trying to look for a bias. Say this is just contradicting. And right. He actually went through verse by verse. Said no, this isn't contradicting. This. All these things don't match up right to say that he's pulling the wrong prophet. Sure. Sure. That's uh, that's what's starting to make sense. You guys pulling the wrong prophet? What are you talking about? I've never heard this objection. Some some other person said that as I read about this that that maybe Zechariah was quoting from Jeremiah when he was writing Zechariah 11. I don't I don't know what kind of truth there is to that, but that's another optimist out there. Um, the person said that it's it's purely from Zechariah, even though he doesn't mention field, but they said Jeremiah because he's the first prophet in the book of prophets. He's a major prophet. But I don't find that that argument very convincing. The one I used today, I found the most convincing. So, yeah, I think so too. Proverbs 
uh, well, I knew it was wrong, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to look bad uh, in front of everybody. Because that's where that road goes down that, that Karen was talking about, covering things up. Because now you're trying to cover up before God, and He sees it. And you're trying to cover it up before other people, you know, so they don't see it. And uh, we have to make sure that we never do that, even, even not with each other, but uh, not even with sinners. Yeah, I actually had the same thing happen this last week. I was, I was on a video, I don't know, something about marijuana. People were commenting on it, and I was rebuking them. And I rebuked a woman, and I made an accusation at her that she was doing marijuana, and it was the wrong accusation. I was waiting to kind of see if she would actually reveal she was lying or anything, but she never really did. So I had to apologize to her until I, I, attempt, I attempted to make an accusation at her that wasn't true. He says that he thinks that Joseph was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by his brothers in Genesis. Shekel, okay. Yeah. This is thirty-seven twenty-eight. You're close. That's the thing I kept thinking, though, know, when you were bringing up Peter and Judas. Uh, Judas did say Judas was better off never Right, because he he died yeah. the way he did. I mean, he. You say that about anybody. Anyone who dies in their sin. Better off they've never been born. Yeah, surely his his sin is greater because he was taught by Jesus for three years than someone else who dies in their sin. But you can really say that about anybody who dies in sin. Better off they've never been better off they've never been born. Yeah, it was 20 seconds. It's, uh, Genesis 37 and verse 28, yeah. Yeah. But that's a, I mean, even though that was inaccurate, Malachi, it's good to bring it up because it's, he's a type of Jesus. All the tribes of Israel bowed down and worshipped him.
similar as uh, you have Joseph's actual brothers betraying him for 20 shekels of silver. And then Judas was supposed to be a brother of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, you are my brother or my sister or whatever if you do the will of my father. So he was a follower of Jesus. They were brothers in a sense. And he betrayed him. So just like the brothers of Joseph betrayed him. And they were 12 and they were 12. Kind of regret. If his, if his purpose in killing himself was to take away his shame and guilt, it didn't work. None of those things I gave work, except for the last one. Says it happened, but it didn't say, oh, this happened, you know, at this time, this hour, and it's going to go into the specific about hours 
other things are left open to you to interpret the crime. So it might have been over a day or two where Jesus was hanging and the field was purchased and all those things happened. Mm -hmm. Understanding should just drive us to study more. Yeah. Uh, to gain more understanding. So yeah. if we run into something we just don't understand, then we should say, Well, I want to understand. So we should dig deeper into the word and, and then study. And then some things, you know, like he pointed out, some things we may never explicitly know. We just have to, like you said, know that it's true. Well, I mean, there's lots of prophecies about future things that involve men's free will. Doesn't negate their free will. It's just God declaring what they will do. Not, not what they have to do. What they will do. You know, about for cert their certainty doesn't equal necessity. It doesn't take away contingency. Uh, so we have free will, certainty about the future, and necessity is, is some outside force forcing you to do it. But God's certainty and knowledge about the future has not forced you to commit that very thing. Um, and we, we looked at these prophecies before regarding Judas. <clears throat> They're all parallel prophecies. Uh, none of them are even mentioning Judas by name. They're all parallel. So they had a fulfillment in the Old Testament, and Judas fulfilled them in the New Testament. If Judas had not fulfilled the New Testament, we, would have, we wouldn't have known that they were parallel prophecies. They would have just been prophecies in their own time, fulfilled in their own time. And so he's speaking about this after the, after the fact. You know. And uh, 
Yeah. So prophecies uh, are certain things from God's point of view. Uh, but from our point of view, like, for example, First, first uh, Timothy 4, 1 says, The Spirit expresses says that in latter times many will depart from the faith. That's going to happen. Does that mean that God is forcing those people to depart from the faith? Is that, does God's certain knowledge about that cause them to depart from the faith? Does it name who departs from the faith? No. And God... That's Second, second Thessalonians 2. Uh, and the strong delusion, I believe, is the mark of the beast. But God doesn't make them take a mark of the beast. He's allowing it to come. They have a choice to take it. And just because many will depart from the faith in latter days does not mean that God is saying, well, God may know that God does know who will depart from the faith. That means he's causing them to depart from the faith. And so the, the objection, only objection people can have to this is philosophical. But since philosophy means love of wisdom, and all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ, and the Bible makes it clear that we do have free will to make these decisions, God's knowledge about these decisions does not make or take your free will away. And so if your philosophical objections that someone may have contradicts what God says about himself, then they're using some other standard of philosophy that's not found in the Scripture, but philosophy comes from Christ. So how can you do that? How You're exalting your own standard what philosophy is, and you're bringing objection against the one who is the founder of philosophy, which doesn't make any sense. It's the same thing with morality. You know, people want to judge God about some things he's done throughout history, but he's the one who defines what morality is. So to, to come against him is to exalt your own standards, to make yourself the judge, to make yourself God, and who determines right and wrong. But you're not fit. We're not fit to determine what's right and wrong. We're not fit to determine what is, what is wisdom and what isn't. God is the only one fit for that. And so the scriptures declare that God knows the future, even our free will decisions, before they happen. And he still says that we're accountable for those decisions. That means our free will is not taken away in the process, and we're still accountable for them. So when it comes to Judas, it's, I mean, it's obvious from this that in Acts 1, he had a part in that ministry. Does, does God allow people to have a part in the ministry that, are, that are, are wicked the whole time? No, I mean, he became wicked eventually, but he had a part in the ministry. You know, we've looked at Matthew 10. I think it thoroughly refutes the idea that Jesus was never a true disciple. He was at one point in time. So. The thing about uh, parallel prophecy is the parallel fulfillment is rarely, if ever, perfectly fulfilled. Uh, true. It's not actual, perfect, original fulfillment. If you look at the original fulfillment of the parallel prophecy, the actual fulfillment, it was perfectly fulfilled. Right. In that. And there's uh, two different types of parallel prophecies. There's ones that's already been fulfilled in the past, and there's some parallel prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled we see foreshadows of fulfillment in the past, mm-hmm. like concerning with the uh, uh, Antichrist. Uh, there have been types of Antichrist uh, in the past. Nero. But they have not been perfect fulfillments of the future prophecies concerning the actual Antichrist. Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, that type of uh, parallel prophecy also. Which are which are parallel prophecies that we're, the scriptures don't explicitly say it's a parallel prophecy. There's, there's a similarities between them. Like the destruction of the Second Temple. Yeah. A lot of people like to look at that as being actual fulfillment of what happened in, in Daniel 9. In Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, but it's not. It's actually a, uh, like a, a parallel fulfillment. Uh, it doesn't perfectly satisfy all the criteria of the actual prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. Right. Okay. 
Even Psalm 41, 9, which talks about, uh, Jesus quoted about Judas, my familiar friend in whom I trusted, so I did trust him at some point in time, has lifted his heel against me. That was originally about Ahithophel, and Judas and Ahithophel aren't exactly matching up the stories. There are similarities, but not exactly matching up. That, even that verse goes to show you that he did trust Judas at one point in time, because he was trustworthy. But he became untrustworthy. And also in John 17, I mean, he, he says, I have lost none that you've given me, except for one. Right? So he, he was given to him, and he did lose the one. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the exact, you know, that's the exact kind of passage you can use with John chapter 6, uh, where it says, not my father's will that I lose any. Of course it's not the father's will that you lose any. Of course it isn't. That doesn't mean you're not going to lose any. You know, the Father doesn't want you to lose any. Anyone who's in the faith right now in this room, God wants none of you to depart from the faith. But the question of whether you will or not is yet to be seen. Because there is a possibility that you could. But it's not God's will that any of you depart from the faith. And for those who aren't in the faith yet, it's not God's will for you to perish. It's yet to be seen whether you will or not. Unless Peter's going to put his leg on one of them, and you know, like that. I mean, that's not what he was saying. He was he was saying that there were twelve thrones, there were twelve people he was talking to. You know. And you you see the the fact that in Acts one we didn't really talk about it, but they were trying to replace Judas, which means they saw every need to replace him because he was really genuine in the first place. He was fake all along. Why would you need to replace him? You know. They saw a need for that 12th person for a 12th throne. Why would God prepare 12 thrones in the first place if he, you know, Judas was never trustworthy? Okay, anybody else?